Welcome back to part three of this summer's dilemmas of ethics and morals, where we get a different perspective and maybe even a divine one on current issues that in some way affect us all. I'm Vip Jaswal, and our guest is Pastor Dean Curry. Welcome back, Pastor. Thank you, Vip. It's wonderful to be here. Well, Dean, you were in Switzerland last week in some sort of a religious peace summit convention. Tell us about it. Yeah, I was invited by some friends, Norwegian friends who work for the Peace Research Institute of Oslo to get together with some Islamic leaders to talk about how we can uh, work together as people from different faiths to create more peace in our countries. It was very inspirational. And it was just uh, you and, and the Islamic priests? There were some uh, Catholic priests that were there. I represented the Protestant wing of the Jesus followers, and mm-hmm. then there were some uh, yeah, Islamic leaders that came together to represent the Shia movement within the Muslim faith. So it's just the Islamics and the um, Christians? Yes. Uh-huh. No, no Jewish people? Well, there, I'm sorry, there were two Jewish rabbis that came. Oh, good. And they uh, participated as well. But we didn't have any Buddhists. Next time. And Hindus. And Hindus, and we could have uh, some other groups represented as well, I'm sure. You know, I've never been great at history, but I've always, never, I've always wanted to understand why the Muslims and the Jews fight so much. Mm. If you look at it, you know, there are so many similarities. They don't eat pork. Mm-hmm. The fundamentalists grow beards. And they're all circumcised. I mean, you've got three things in common right there. Well, we, in fact, one of the places where we began the dialogue was that all three of them come from Abrahamic roots, from Abraham, the character in the Old Testament. Right. And of course, the Jewish faith comes from Abraham, and then believers in Jesus follow, trace their lineage back. But as do the Muslim, our Muslim brothers and sisters who consider themselves an offshoot of uh, Abraham's first son, Ishmael. So it, they ha- we, we do have some common roots, and it, we should get along better than we do. Well, you know what? We need to have all three of you on the show. We'll do it. And, and make it a game show called Who's <laughs> Got the Best God? <laughs> Dueling <doodling> divinities. <laughs> I like it. We'll do it, Vip. It's going to be... It, I think people would love to hear that uh, it's not all hand grenades and car bombs. There, There's a lot of people working for peace around the world. Well, funny you say that, because from a peace summit on religion to burning churches in Egypt. And this past Sunday was the first Sunday in 1,600 years that followers of the Virgin Mary and the Anba Abram Monastery were unable to pray. And that's because the Islamists set the church and the monastery on fire and announced that a mosque will replace the church. It seems Egypt is on some sort of an anti-Christian program. Uh, There are reports also that are coming out that there are 50 other churches that are being targeted. And, you know, taking that philosophy of the separation of church and state, we protect our state. We have embassies around the world that retain special protection from the host country's uh, security forces. But, you know, I was thinking maybe we should also be protecting our church. We have diplomatic immunity. Do we also have religious immunity? Mm. Um, And to me, you know, at what point do we stop allowing our Christian brothers and sisters to be persecuted? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, this is a human rights issue. 
and, and it's one I'm pretty passionate about. My, I have a twin brother, Vip, so there are, not only am I good-looking, there's another one just like me roaming around the world, and he is the so, chief executive officer of a group that has offices in 37 countries. It's called Open Doors International. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they, adv- they are a human rights organization advocating and supporting Believers in Jesus who are being persecuted. Over 100,000 people last year were executed because they were believers in Jesus, Christians. And, I mean, like this morning, for instance, he gets a briefing every day about what's going on in different countries. This is from Open Doors. Um, These numbers are from their offices in Cairo. But there were 14 Catholic churches and convents that were burned to the ground last week. Uh, Coptic or Orthodox churches, there were 35 of those that were burned. Other school, uh, religious schools, there were nine. The Bible Society was burned to the ground. Uh, the offices of uh, various Christian churches burned to the ground. 58 homes of community religious leaders burned to the ground. 85 shops that were owned by Christians burned to the ground. 75 uh, uh, buses and cars that were owned as businesses. I mean, it goes on and on. Hundreds are injured, and it just happens all the time. We're more aware of it because of the press coverage that Egypt is having. But, but I don't you Egypt. think? Don't you think we need a set of armed forces to protect the religious interests of every member of humanity? Because you uh, don't, well, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Well, it, isn't that already the purposes of our? of our forces to protect everybody. I mean, if this, if we were talking, I don't, I, I'm frankly... I think we protect our politics. I don't think we protect our religion. Oh, I think if under the guise of human human rights, we ought to. If these were homosexuals being killed, if 100,000 homosexuals were being murdered a year, mm-hmm. you don't think people would be up in arms? I'm hoping that the world... I'm, I, I hope that it's just that we don't know. I hope it's that we don't... It's that... Uh, I, I guess I'm worried that it's that we that we don't care, but I'm I'm concerned about it. I'm very Sorry. concerned about it because we protect our politics, we protect our belief system, but I'm not sure we protect our religion. Yeah. Well, that that separation of church and state idea, which is not in the Constitution, it's in other uh, documents surrounding and supporting, you know, our our uh, system. But it it really has become a fear thing. People are afraid to intervene on behalf of religious people, I think, because they don't want to be seen as giving preferential treatment. But it's way beyond that now, Vip. I mean, there's no there's no sense that followers of Jesus are getting preferential treatment around the world. There is no big... You know, I had a diplomat say to me last week, Vip, and you might appreciate this, that most of our diplomats were raised in a world where the Cold War model prevailed. So they were taught, educated in our universities and in their training to relate to adversaries from an atheistic point of view. Well, today, that worldview is basically dead. And all of the trouble spots around the world, they don't lead with an atheistic point of view. They're coming to the table with a religious dogma. And many of them, um, like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, have a very aggressive point of view about hurting people who don't agree with them. 
Now, I would say at this peace summit that I was at in Zurich, there there were 15 Muslim clerics who all stood up and said they denounced any kind of uh, violence against believers and that uh, they denounced al-Qaeda. So there are many great Muslim leaders who are beginning to stand up, and they don't want their faith to be hijacked by the most radical elements of their of their uh, system. You know, my question here is this. They are denouncing mm-hmm. this, but they are probably denouncing it in closed doors, behind closed doors. Because I don't see, like in the U.S., I don't see publicity given to the Muslim people denouncing what their Muslim brothers are doing abroad. It's interesting. You, yes, know, you I, know what I mean? I, 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 it, it, to their defense, because I do want to, these, these uh, friends uh, uh, were so sincere, Vip. Uh, is it, is it, isn't it just a case that uh, dog bites man is not a story, but man bites dog, that's a story? When a leader gets up, when a religious leader gets up and says, peace, we want peace, everybody goes, ho-hum, of course you're going to say that. But when one gets up, like this little church in the south, the Westboro Baptist, in no way do they represent the followers of Jesus. They're protesting at funerals and attacking attacking. Uh, families whose loved ones have died in war, saying it's some judgment against from God. In no way do they represent the followers of Jesus. A little church with about 40 or 50 people in it, all of them radicalized by some charismatic whack job leader. And but they but the New York Times is talking about them. They're not talking about churches like ours that do great things throughout the community, making friends with lots of different. Of folks from different walks of life. I think it's just a, a media spotlight that we shine on the most odd or other. Yeah, um, I agree, but I think I've never seen a protest to date, a peaceful one at that, by our Muslim brothers in this country going up, say, to the Egyptian embassy and saying this has got to stop. You know what? We should get that going. I, I, I mean, I think this this is a great point you're making, and I think there are leaders who have that heart, and uh, perhaps... But they're not leading. You know, you can say something in principle, and you can say it behind closed doors, and you can say it for a matter of convenience. Yes, we denounce it. But, you know, um, put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. There's a call to action that's needed. It's also going to help society... Uh, discriminate less. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And it's groups like Open Doors International and others that are getting out there, and they really have people on the ground that are working with the Muslim community trying Mm -hmm. to make friendships. And I know that there are sincere leaders that are engaging to help uh, on these efforts, and and I and I look forward to helping them get a platform to to speak up because you know, Vip, all of us in the defining moment, we often lack courage. My son told me a story recently. I just want to share it with you. He was in San Francisco. He's 20 years old. There was an elderly lady sitting two rows in front of him, and she tapped on the shoulder of a young man who was playing music really loud, and asked him 
to turn it down. This young man spun on this lady, she's some 40 years older than him, and started berating this old lady in front of my son. And then this young man gets off, runs off the the bus, and my son sat there, and he called me from his cell phone. He said, Dad, I didn't do anything. I should have done, I should have stood up for that lady. I should have said, stop it. I mean, haven't we all had that moment yes. where we see something and we think, oh, that's wrong, but we get worried about what's this guy going to do and what's he going to do to me? And uh, uh, I, think, I think we have this paralysis. And, it, and in that moment, we lack courage. And I think that's what happens to lots of leaders of faith from, from the Christian stream, from the Islamic stream. I agree to a point, but then those sort of situations are where there are moments of reflection. But now, but we're in a situation where these things are happening on a daily basis. So the concept of that moment in time is now becoming continuous. Yeah. I understand, you know, your son saying, okay, at that moment, things happened so fast, I didn't know where to look, what to do, how to think. And then the moment went. This moment's not going. It's continuous. Every day there's something. So there is time for recollection. There is time for reflection. But there seems to be no action. Yeah. That's where I'm getting a little concerned as to, you know, they're enjoying the benefits of living in this great country. But they're watching us and what we stand for being persecuted in theirs. That's what gets to me. And, you know, talking about Taking life, I read another interesting story uh, this week, and it was actually beyond interesting. It was shocking and almost stomach-churning. An employee at a bar in Philadelphia was cleaning the restroom and in the process found the body of a fetus in the toilet. The discovery was made when the cleaner was trying to flush the toilet, but it wouldn't work properly. So when the cleaner opened the tank, the fetus was discovered. The police are now treating the discovery of the fetus as a crime. Um, You know, this case brought to light the whole concept of pro-life versus pro-choice. Right. Where does your congregation stand on this? Well, we're a pro-life congregation. Mm -hmm. More importantly, um, for the sake of this conversation, I'm a pro-life person. Right. My mother would have had lots of different reasons that she could have ended my life. Um, as I shared last time, and I, I hope people go back and listen to these stories and the, uh, the, these sessions that we've done on the archives, because we've had such great conversations, Viv, and I thank you for them. But my mom, you know, was a single mother. She had a three-year-old daughter, and she found out she was pregnant with twins. She had every reason on unemployment, every reason to abort us. I'm sure grateful she didn't. So I'm a pro-life guy, and I and I frankly... Am troubled and uh, and uh, maybe amused isn't the word. It's interesting to me the double standards we have around life. If a pregnant woman gets hit and uh, hit, and in some way the quote unquote fetus dies, they would charge that person with a homicide. But if the mother ended that very same life, it would be a matter of choice, and it's not a person. Catch this. In the New York Times, they they thought at one point you p- perhaps saw this. This was toward the beginning of the summer. They they thought they had found ice on Mars. Yes. And 
so the the headline that I read in the New York Times said life on Mars, and, I, and I, so I kept reading the article, and they were thinking that they might have found ice, which means water. Water means life. So they picked the title life on Mars. Now I thought interesting. On Mars, the standard for life is H two O. On America, you can have you can have an eye socket, uh, you can have toes and fingers, and you're still not a life. Double standards everywhere, man. But you know, you're you're saying you're pro-life. I want to contest that a bit. Okay. Um, This is the way I view as an ordinary person, um, maybe even less than. But the gift of life to me in itself is something that's given from God. I agree with you on that. And I'm sure you agree with me on that, too. But the gift of living a life, of living a life, is is something that only a mother can do. What do you mean? Um, Bringing you up. Rearing you? Yeah. Oh, I would beg to differ. There are lots of people that are reared in orphanages. They're no less human than we are. Oh, I'm I'm not saying that they're less human. But the love, the affection, the nurturing is not as sterile as it would be in an orphanage. Well, let's let's take it out of orphanages, although I think lots of great people have come from places like that. I can think of my friend Jackson. He's from Kampala, Uganda. He'll be here with me in a few weeks in Tacoma. Mm-hmm. And he was left in a dumpster in Kampala. Right. His mother was HIV positive. He's now building orphanages there and making a huge difference. But there are people who are adopted um, into families, you know, that they don't really have a biological connection. But the culture rises up and says, "Our, our this generation, they're our, they're our future. And we need to... Uh, You're talking about orphanages in a yeah. great country like America? where there is a structure, there's a system. I remember seeing a documentary on orphanages in Romania. Yes. Did you see that? No, but we support some. Right. Um, And I think it was produced by the BBC or something, and I I saw it in the 1990s or whatever. Um, The kids were chained to the the cot. So, you know, there are both ways of looking at it. Right. I'm not saying, and, and this, you know, obviously is something we can discuss at, at great length. It's just my sentiments go towards if a woman feels that she cannot be a good mother, yeah. then maybe, maybe, it's better for all concerned not to have the child. Sometimes accidents do happen. What happens I, if a I young woman is raped? Very presumptuous. What happens if a young woman's raped and is impregnated? Mm-hmm. Um... And she's not ready to be a mother. Tragic. She, then she really, she shouldn't raise the child if she doesn't feel like she's ready. And I know that, I mean, I, I err. If I'm going to err, I, I really want to err on the side of life. I just finished reading Steve the biography that Walter Isaacson did, New mm-hmm. York Times bestseller, on Steve Jobs. Adopted. Uh, I saw an interview on 60 Minutes last week with uh, Larry Ellison, the the man who started Oracle, one of the I think he's the third richest man in America, adopted. Uh, these people, uh, well, yeah, 
how do you know, man? It's it's almost we're we're assuming godlike insight about what you know who's capable or not capable, and well, I, that's why we have these discussions because we're trying yeah. to find the answer for which probably there isn't one. I think if we're going to make a mistake, let's make a mistake giving a person an opportunity to take a deep breath and live life. Give them a give them a shot and. Life isn't ideal for any of us, and I know that there are lots of girls like my mom who wound up pregnant in uncomfortable circumstances, but they raised great kids, or they were able to give the kids a home with an adopted family where they could get nurturing. And I think humankind can do we do better than we give ourselves credit for. I know 60 Minutes or the BBC can find the aberrant behavior and make it seem normative but i think that um you know well you know for every good there's also a bad that's the yin and yang of life i guess for every good example you give me i'm sure there are records that show that sometimes even there is a bad in that of course well that's why i love talking to you thank you um Chris Christie, our Republican governor of New Jersey, he signed off on a law yesterday, or I think a few days ago, barring licensed therapists from trying to turn gay teenagers straight. This whole, yeah, I mean, there's something about sexuality every week. It seems like it, huh? Um, And here's an interesting story on this conversion therapy of trying to convert teenagers. I'm going to keep the names fictional, but the story is true. At age 14, John Johnson, not his real name, came out to his parents after one of several suicide attempts. His father, a conservative Roman Catholic from a military background, was especially upset to find out that his son was gay. He cornered John in their Houston home and beat him, breaking his leg and sending him to the hospital. John ran away to stay with friends. His mother found him and convinced him to return home. However, his parents insisted that he begin conversion therapy. This whole conversion therapy is based on the belief that a gay male or a lesbian can be changed back mm-hmm. to heterosexual behavior. Yeah. Uh, there, is some t- there is a saying, I think, that gay is a self-chosen identity. And I think we had that discussion with Dave Thompson. We did indeed. And I think you were of that thought as well. And his thought was that it's a God-given identity. Mm. Um, Now, with this young man, uh, after he was beaten, sent to conversion therapy, nothing worked. He says, finally, at age 20, he was able to secure his own financial independence. He hadn't spoken to his parents for about a year. But finally, when his father had a stroke and what he thought was his deathbed... They finally came to grips with each other and forgave each other for what each of them had done. Um, My thing is this. There is no real medical treatment in any of this. Conversion therapy has no grounding in, in mainstream medicine. Now, you said previously that our sexuality is a choice, and in that case, then, if sexuality is a choice, then 
are we not all born as bisexual? And I'm not convinced I'm bisexual because then uh, I've always liked women, me and Hugh Hefner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you you don't really want to make that connection, do you? <laughs> That's funny. I I think that uh, as I said to you in the, our first interview with mm. with Dave, as we talked about this topic, I think any behavior you feed and applaud grows more prominent. And so I think I I don't see it. I don't see any support in Scripture, let me say this up front, as a follower of Jesus and someone who looks at the New Testament and tries to extrapolate principles on how I should live in 2013, I don't see any support in Scripture for trying to coerce anybody into doing anything. Coercion and persuasion are two totally different animals. So I would be against, in the anecdote that you just shared there, I'm against that scenario because the young man doesn't want to change. And frankly, I'm, I, I've been around enough teenagers. I'm not entirely sure, no insult to the teenagers that are listening, but I'm not entirely sure that that cement is all that firm at that age. There's a lot of wet cement still drying, still forming. And to, to assume that somebody's a heterosexual or a homosexual because of their experiences and experimentation at 15 or 16 seems awfully uh, alarmist to me. Well, I guess those with a vested interest in this are probably yeah. thinking that mold them while you still can. Yeah. But, you know, this, this, I, I wish more people of faith would get off of the coercion path and get onto a persuasion path. Instead of trying to um, make declarations, try to make friends. I know I have lots of people who have sexual identity questions, sexual identity issues, and, and they get to walk through that issue just like those of us who have marital issues get to walk through those issues. We solve it one day at a time. We, we, we make a few mistakes. We get a few answers. But there's an old saying that my mentor taught me. It's just a little rhyme. It just says, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. You you only think you're winning an argument. If their will isn't in it, if their heart isn't in it, they're smiling at you, but they believe what they've always believed. And that's what I would say to our, you know, our... Uh, therapist friends. But I think it's interesting, if I can tether two topics together, mm-hmm. that the governor would get involved in this politically, because it seems like political posturing to me, and particularly against uh, what I would perceive to be religious therapists, because I can't imagine that a uh, therapist from another way of thinking would be doing this. So it's a way of aligning yourself against people of faith, then I think that's probably not a good thing for him or any other political leader. Well, yeah, my philosophy tends to be, you know, who are we to judge those living when God judges only when they're dead? You know, let it be. To each his own, to a certain extent. As long as we approach it with a certain level of common sense. Yeah, I wish there was more of that around. Because, look, you know, um, when things are not perfect within your own life, why try and cure imperfections or perceived imperfections in someone else's? Uh-huh. Yeah. 
I am a big fan, however, if people are crying out, and I mean, I've had lots of people from lots of different experiences in my offices, and we've facilitated groups for for friends that are trying to get out of homosexual lifestyle, and we're a big proponent of if people don't want to live a certain way, we want to help you get free from that thing. You can say, I've had people say to me, you can never be free from heroin addiction. And then a heroin addict walks in your office. What are you going to say to them? Are you going to say, like, I'm sorry, you'll never really be free? No, I'm going to say, I'll do everything in my power to support your desire to be free from that addiction. And if somebody walks into my office and says, I'm not sure about my sexuality, but I'm not comfortable identifying myself as homosexual. Will you support me and walk with me? I'm like, yeah, you bet. We've got a support group for that. Well, that's that's if they come to you, and of course, yeah, of course. then then of course you're going to have to give them a sense of direction, a sense of uh, understanding. Um, but if they're happy being who they are, and no one's getting hurt, I'm happy with that. Well, and even if you weren't happy with it, what power would you have over it? Absolutely not. Yeah, this is what I'm trying to say. And, and But I think the characterization, Vip, that the governor creates by creating by suggesting this legislation, it's creating a perception that all of these therapists are coercive. And I would, I would challenge that. I frankly don't know anybody who's trying to turn gay people into straight people. I know some people who are in a homosexual lifestyle who are troubled by their own behavior because of... It, it contradicts with their religious beliefs because it troubles them because they're already in a in a marriage and they're breaking up a family. I mean, people are conflicted, and they seek out help like this. And to make it more difficult for a therapist to help somebody, I think the coercive guy, whoever that is, the guy or gal who's trying to coerce a 17-year-old because dad doesn't want him to be gay, is a fool anyway because it's not going to work. You can't talk a 17. I've got two teenagers. I've, I can't get them to take the garbage out coercively. <laughs> well, you're right about that. Um, no, but you know what? In the last three of our um, shows, it's given me... Uh, I wanted to spend some time sharing our experiences uh, with each other. And I'm not... a I believe in God. I'm not. I'm not uh, religious in any in any way, shape, or form. I have a great belief in God and a huge respect for all religions. Um, and it's ironic that you know, in in my life, that I'm actually end end up speaking to a pastor. Uh, <laughs> but it's been like therapy. Has it? Oh, yes. Good. Because I think you. I've I've, I've learned a lot from you and I and I think the top two things that I would say uh, I got from you especially from our first show was the concept of forgiveness as part of evaluating a situation mm-hmm. a moment of anger a moment of grief um, and also I think in all three of them that for me, I, I don't think religion holds all the answers to life. I think the reason we are given a brain is to evaluate for ourselves what is right and what is wrong, using religion as a backbone. 
You know, if we have a brain, we have a conscience, and we have faith, I think we're pretty set. Yes, yeah. Well, I guess uh, I would say, and maybe you believe the same, that, you know, God gave us this intellect. We really ought to use it. For me, Vip, these are these have been very encouraging conversations. Not because the topics have been easy. I mean, some of these conversations have been on painful ideas. You know, last week when we talked about these two children that were killed by a python and abortions, babies found in in toilets. I mean, these are the things in our culture that make us troubled. They stir us. They make us ask the bigger questions. So the the topics haven't been easy, but I will say it's been refreshing to be on a program that's not just interested in heat, but it's also interested in light, which I think has become part of the problem with our discourse. Our public discourse has been in sound bites, and it's about zingers, and it's about um, making points instead of making friends. I think it's about and, winning the argument where sometimes... The logic doesn't prevail. Yes. And frankly, Vip, before I met you, I had lost hope in the process a little bit. That's what my wife said. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. I will say, my second observation is you have a wicked sense of humor. Oh, well, that's why I I call her a sex object, you know, because every time I ask for sex, she objects. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. But, but uh, it's been I've really enjoyed it very much and and I thank you for the friendship and I thank you for what you're doing for our culture because if we don't have conversations like this who's going to who's going to have a dialogue like this for the grown-ups I I hope it's happening on university campuses I hope that in sociology classes on our high schools they're having conversations like this but I fear that instead the loudest voice and the rudest voice is being heard more frequently. And you are changing the culture in this way, and I'm appreciative of it. Well, as an outsider to America and and someone who loves this country greatly, um, these are outside observations. I sometimes find that we make issues out of things that we shouldn't be. Yeah. We look for problems that really don't necessarily exist. And um, it's just fascinating to see how sometimes close-minded we can be. Yeah. Considering the rest of humanity around the world and the problems they face. There's a, truly, there are some huge problems in the world and, and our American audience can't I mean, unless you've seen it and touched it, you can hardly get your mind around the significant dilemmas that people are facing. But ideas that, like we're discussing here really help bring light to the subject. And I hope that my presence has got gotten into the head of some religious people who are reflexively religious and they're not very thoughtful. I think that happens a lot in America. You buy the line from headquarters what what headquarters says you ought to believe, and you're not engaging the community because we need more followers of Jesus who actually live their affirmations and not just spout them off all the time. Because if followers of Jesus were more loving and more forgiving, and we're all getting opportunities to to be so, um, 
Well, that's what I found in in in, um, in my conversations with you that you bring religion to a pragmatic level, and yeah. not not at a level where it's unachievable. You know, beyond someone's own ethics and morals. Well, I've, I've had that's to a rare quality. <laughs> Thank you. When I was eight years old, I think I talked about this in another venue, but uh, when I was eight years old, uh, we, as I mentioned, we were from a broken family, and we, I, I was uh, sexually abused in, in, by a family member. Mm-hmm. And if, if you don't know how to forgive, getting up every day knowing that someone has taken something from you that you could never get back, and yet you still have to move forward because you got your whole life ahead of you. And what made the difference for me was learning that Jesus of Nazareth really loved me and forgave me. And then he asked me to forgive other people. And so I had to practice forgiveness every day. Forgiveness wasn't a moment for me. Forgiveness became a lifestyle for me. And I try to do that with other friends who go through other dilemmas. There, Some are similar to mine and others aren't. But I wanted to ask you about this word forgive. Yeah. You know, when you use the word forgive, do you mean to forget and move on? Because sometimes, for me, forgiveness would mean going back to the starting point before it was breached. So if you had a lot of affection for, say, a family member of yours before the sexual event happened. Yeah. Um, when you say forgive, do you mean going back to that point before it happened, or do you mean, you know what, let's forget it, let's say it, it didn't happen even though it happened, and let's see what we can resurrect from what's left? More of B than A. But I might even create a category C, which says that I, I'm not even really trying to pretend that it didn't happen. What I'm trying to do is take what happened and use the best lessons from it and and leave the bitterness, the pain, the self-pity that can come out of it. So when I talk about being sexually abused, there's no energy in that for me anymore because I've talked about it and I've used it to help other people to see that, hey, you can have a great life and this doesn't have to be the worst thing that ever happened to you. This can be a sign to you that you can overcome anything. So I often tell people from now on when I say, I know I can I can make it out of a situation because I've been through hell when I was eight, seven, eight years old, and and life went on. Good days came, right. and so when uh, so these uh, defining moments teach us about our resiliency. They don't just teach us about our brokenness. They teach us about how we can put back together, and it will never be the same. But it doesn't always have to be a horror. We're so trying to remove the negative aspect out of what's left. That's right. And try and build on what's yeah. possible. And to help yeah. And to go forward. Because scriptures tell us that God forgets. But it never says we have to. <laughs> Nor are we able. I think we're we just don't have the capacity to pretend. You can you can try, act, play act, but I, I've given up on forgetting. I kind of like the idea of remembering and 
forgiving. I, I know what happened. I know exactly what happened. But I don't let it have any power over me. I think there are a lot of religious people who need to practice that. And I, as you said, I know you're not religious. You believe in God. Uh, there are a lot of Americans that consider themselves spiritual, quote-unquote. They believe in something. They believe something bigger than themselves. I believe in God. That's the thing. I, I do believe in God. I'm just scared and praying to the wrong one. <laughs> well, when you pray to him, how do you pray? Who do you address when you pray? Uh, sort of to be a honest, random... you know, I mean, uh, because of my childhood and my travels, yeah. I've had Christian friends who so have spent time at church. I've okay. had Muslim friends who so have spent time in a mosque. I've spent time at a temple. Uh, I've had Buddhist friends, yeah. so on and so forth. Um, I just pray to a sense of being. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, it's a good start. It's it's a good start. It's a good start. Um I've I've read parts of the Bible. I've read uh the Quran. Um And really, I mean it's just just being good. If someone invites me to a church, I'll go to a church. If someone invites me to a synagogue, I'll go. Mm. Well, it, I, it, I, I guess wise. it's tolerance and respect. And love for all. Yeah. And uh, I might add humility, because most people don't have the humility to admit that there might be an idea mm. at a church that you haven't heard yet. And I think when we're all humble enough to say, I think I could learn something, even if you don't accept it, even if you don't sign off on the, all of the dogma. I know people get alarmed when I say I'm a follower of Jesus, but I have Muslim friends. And I'm frankly surprised that they're alarmed. I mean, can't we all learn something about this world at least? You don't have to sign off on a dogma because you have a friend. But they believe in God. In their language, his name is Allah. Right. And, uh, I believe that God had a son. His name was Jesus. My Muslim friends believe Jesus actually lived. They believe he was a prophet. I believe he was a prophet, too. In fact, I believe he was the highest prophet. I believe he was more than a prophet. They don't. But we can have conversations on a very enlightening level where everybody walks out a little smarter and a little more appreciative. And, and, and all you have to bring to the table is a little humility. Well, it's not just Jesus that's watching you. We have the atheists watching you. Because we have, a, I received a question on Facebook from a gentleman by the name of uh, Darren Garvin. Mm. And he said, ask Dean about the Tacoma Atheists joining Life Center to serve the city in September. Oh, that's great. Darren is a friend. Darren, Darren is a good example mm. of what I think Jesus, uh, how Jesus people and atheists can engage. Because I, I pastor the largest church in the area, and Darren is a part of... Uh, the Tacoma Atheist Association, and he hosts a radio show on a local uh, channel uh, called Ask an Atheist, and he and I have become friends. And we get together and have coffee, and we talk about life and philosophy and faith and mm -hmm. lack of faith. But he and I got to talking about the fact that we need a little more civility in this town between the religious and irreligious or non-religious. So we are uh, in September 
going to have a dialogue here at the church where he's going to present what his worldview is and have some friends there. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask questions and we're going to have some insight. And then the following night, we're going to get our church friends together and his uh, Tacoma Atheist Association together. And we're going to go out and do a dozen community improvement projects. We're going to, you know, help uh, take care, clean up some homes for some elderly people. We're going to uh, do some work at some schools and and other projects like that. We're going to make some care kits. We have uh, 1,500 HIV-positive people here in town that don't have health care, and so we're going to create some care kits for these HIV-positive friends in town. And I mean, these are things that atheists and people of faith can come together on, and um, you make friendships and you make a difference all at the same time. I hope I hope that uh, this model catches on. I'm glad Darren asked that question. He's a good guy, and I enjoy his friendship. Well, uh, thank him for asking the question, too. And what's your sermon for the coming week? Well, we're going to be talking about the difference between religion and relationship this week. As you heard me speak on some of these other episodes, I, I'm not entirely convinced that religion is helping, because dogmas that are disconnected from the love of Jesus, particularly in the Christian faith, um, are doing more damage than they are good. So we're going to talk about that this week. It's going to be great. Oh, excellent. Well, Pastor Dean, having you as a guest has been a very broad mind, very mind-broadening experience, and, and your Thank insight you. has been so inspiring. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, and my friend. hopefully we'll see you soon with the other three. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, this is it for today. Before I sign off, I need to say a big thank you to my production team consisting of the handsome William Sanchez and the ever-so-charming Rick Busa for making this show happen. Feel free to send me your comments to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the Vip Jaswell Report or tweet me if you dare at Vip Jaswell on Twitter. Thank you for listening and keep your ears open for the next report coming soon. <laughs>